Hello, welcome back to Amlex's weekly podcast. It's great to have your company. I'm your host, James Paniki, walking you through some of the bigger stories in regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. Now, is it just me or has artificial intelligence been making news of late? A few weeks ago, it was the chat GPT program that people were talking about. Would it be doing us all out of a job? Could students ask it to do their homework for them? Obviously, some very big questions there. But then there were some more recent AI-generated photos of the Pope in a coat, the whole Balenciaga Pope internet sensation, or the fake photos of former US President Donald Trump on the perp walk. So AI is what we're talking about. It's all around us. And if it's with us now, that means that regulators are playing catch-up, some more than others. A few weeks ago, we discussed this in the context of jurisdictions in the US. Today, we're taking a look at the European Union and the UK to see how things are going there. And the reality is that those two jurisdictions are at very different stages, with the EU far more advanced in its plans for AI regulation and the UK publishing a policy paper only this week. But we're also starting to see some differences in emphasis that reflect two different visions. So let's bring in some expertise from either side of the channel. Nicholas Wallace covers data privacy and security for MLEX from Brussels, while Sam Clark is an MLEX correspondent who covers data privacy and security in the UK and Ireland, and he does it from London, and they're both with us right now. Uh, Sam, let's start with you. Uh, What is the UK's approach to regulation of artificial intelligence? Uh, So it's based on five principles. Uh, Those principles are safety, security and robustness, transparency and explainability, fairness, accountability and governance, and contestability and redress. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but they are sort of fairly standard principles in the world of AI regulation, AI ethics. Um, But essentially no more than that, no more than principles. Um, They haven't made a law or suggested that they are going to make a law. And there's no new regulator, no specific regulator. It's all going to be done by existing regulators in in their various different areas that uh, already exist. Um, And the idea behind that is that uh, they want to stimulate innovation, essentially. They don't want to have a prescriptive kind of um, heavily rules-based system. And they think that will essentially set companies free to to really innovate and kind of develop new systems and build a a whole big AI industry um, without being held back by lots and lots of complicated rules. Okay, so clearly designed to be light touch regulation. Uh, Nick, let me ask you the same basic question. What's the EU's approach? I gather that it's a bit less of a light touch, right? Right, Um, which is often the case. The the general philosophy in the EU is that uh, tough regulations inspire confidence and promote innovation that way. Uh, as opposed to the what you might call the the Anglo-Saxon laissez-faire approach. So what the the European Commission proposed two years ago now uh, is a broad regulation on the use of AI um, and specifically on uses deemed to be high risk. So the law is going to have this this annex that lists all of these high risk uh, use cases. So I mean examples would be. Yeah, anything to do with hiring and firing or uh, assessing school students or, or benefits claimants or you know, an assessment of creditworthiness, these would all be treated as high-risk use cases. And if you're using AI uh, or designing an AI system for use in these scenarios, you would have to get certified with the national authority 
and you would also have to comply with various uh, transparency obligations. For example, the system would have would have to be able to log its own behavior so that you can uh, see that it's it's functioning uh, as expected. Uh, there would also be certain standards with regards to the data you use to train your systems. Uh, it would have to be uh, appropriate for uh, for the use. And again, it would have to be transparent so that other people can uh, look for any sources of bias. So there would be this, this whole list of obligations uh, for these high-risk uses. There would also be a list of uh, uses that would be illegal. So uh, an obvious example would be Chinese-style social credit scoring, where you're looking at people's social behavior or making predictions about their personality to determine how trustworthy they are. That that would be uh, illegal. That There would be a general prohibition on uh, real-time. Uh, it's called remote biometric identification, which an example would be uh, facial recognition in a CCTV system. You would not be able to identify people using AI from a live CCTV feed, with some exceptions, at least in the Commission's proposal, there would be some exceptions for you know, finding missing children, for example, or, or dealing with an, an imminent terrorist threat. It, it's very different from the British approach. It's, it's uh, a much stricter regulation and it's uh, a single law for all, all types of uh, AI systems. Although, Nick, I'm guessing it's going to be a bit more controversial as a result of this prescriptive nature, right? Because, I mean, who gets to decide what is high risk? Is that conversation already being had? Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the biggest sticking points as this law has been negotiated. I mean, the, the other thing that our listeners should perhaps be aware of is that the EU and the UK are just at very different stages in their policy making cycle. The, the UK has only just published its white paper on AI. Um, the EU, the, I should say the European Commission, published its white paper on AI three years ago now, and it, it, it published the, the draft regulation two years ago. So this is now working its way through uh, the European Parliament, where MEPs are, are negotiating, on, uh, negotiating amendments. Uh, it's already been through the Council of the EU, which is where the member states uh, come up with their amendments. They've already agreed a, a set of amendments. And the final stage um, later this year will be for those two institutions to negotiate uh, a final version. And, and what constitutes high risk is, so it's, it's not the only sticking point, but it's certainly one of the big ones. And I'm guessing that all three of those institutions that you've mentioned will have an opinion on what constitutes high risk, and that will be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Now, let me ask you both to describe some of the similarities and differences between the two regimes, at least what we know about them, how they've been outlined up until now. Um, how do you see those differences? Let's start with you, Sam. Uh, well, I was going to start with a similarity, actually, if I, if I may. And I think that is the, the principles that I listed just now. As I said, they're, they're quite familiar. Um, every kind of expert and lawyer that I spoke to said they're very familiar with or to anyone that's, that's kind of ever dealt with, with AI ethics. And they, they kind of generally make sense. Things like making sure AI systems are safe and fair, that's, that's kind of obvious. Um, one of the more interesting ones is this idea of contestability and redress. So that's actually something we kind of already have in the um, general data protection regulation, this idea that uh, if a, a decision is significant and entirely automated, you can ask for it to be reviewed by a human, essentially. And I think in the in the UK approach, a lot has been already said and a, a lot of the experts were talking about the way it will be applied. 
uh, and not that much was necessarily said about the the principles themselves, but they are obviously important. And um, from what I understand, they're pretty similar to those that are in the um, the, the EU proposal, uh, and that's probably largely because they're both based on um, principles decided at the at the OECD. Nicholas, does this resonate with you? Is uh, do you see that similarity? Yeah, I mean, you you can see those five principles in, in a lot of places. Um, it's 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 not. I mean, it's common between the UK and the EU, but it's not unique to those two. It's it, these are internationally agreed principles. They there you know, are small variations. What both of of these approaches seem to have in common is that the emphasis it's less so much on AI systems as such than how they're used. Now, there's a slight caveat there with the EU's AI Act because at least the Commission's proposal, which I should say again is is two years old and and a lot's happened since then, uh, it it seems to work on the assumption that AI systems will always be designed with a very specific use case in mind. So you could say there that the distinction between use and system is is not as obvious as it is in, in the British white paper. Having said that, things have moved along quite quite a bit in the EU, and, and one of the big discussions, particularly in the European Parliament now, is how do you deal with general purpose AI systems? So that's an AI system that could be used for various different purposes that may be high risk or low risk. So I mean, the obvious example would be ChatGPT. You, know, you, you could use a chatbot in, uh, say, a customer service tool to take complaints for an online shopping site. That would be, a, a, I guess, a low risk uh, use, but if you were using it, say, to, uh, I don't know, for employee assessments in the workplace, that, that would be a high-risk use. There isn't really anything uh, that deals with that in the Commission's proposal. What the Member States proposed in, in the Council last year, and I should say they agreed their position, it was only a week or two after ChatGPT went online. They basically want the Commission to, they want to give powers to the Commission to come up with rules for general purpose AI further down the line. Whereas the Parliament is working on uh, some kind of regulatory regime for general purpose AI, we don't know yet exactly what it's going to be because it's still being negotiated. But most likely, it's going to involve having obligations on a company that takes that system and puts it into a, a high risk use, and then slightly less onerous obligations on a company that's producing a, a general purpose AI in the first place. This is an area where I think it's kind of unclear yet to be decided how the the UK's approach will 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 really work so kind of one of the big ideas in the in the UK approach is that each uh, sort of sectoral regulator will make its own its own rules um, and, and that allows them so the UK government says basically to make better rules because they are experts in each area and that seems like a good idea that lots of people are behind but it's kind of complicated because if you take, for example, some of the some of the regulators that the government uh, uses examples in its press release, they were things like the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, the Health and Safety Executive, the, the Competition Watchdog. They are all actually cross-sectoral regulators, so they don't necessarily deal with one industry, they deal with one issue. Uh, and so they could operate, you know, if you had a financial services company, uh, that might be regulated by the financial regulator, but also those three that I just listed. And, for example, the um, Information Commissioner, which deals with data protection. And I think that people kind of listed this as, a, as an issue when it comes to general purpose AI that, that Nick was just talking about, because if it cuts across lots of things and it's more likely to bring in lots of regulators, and I'm sure any company would say they don't want to be dealing with five regulators just for 
for one thing, for one product. Yes, but that raises the question, doesn't it, of whether or not they need a specific regulator for this. And the the ideas outlined in that discussion paper uh, seem to suggest that the UK would not be looking at a specific regulator, right? Yeah, no, that's right. They, they really set their stall out on this idea that each individual regulator basically knows what's best for its own industry. That That has some merit, obviously. I think that the Information Commissioner was kind of possibly foreseen as having a, a slightly centralised role because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of AI is based on data and that there are kind of existing rules in data protection that I already referred to that deal slightly with automated decision making and, and AI and that kind of thing. Um, but that doesn't really seem to have uh, seem to have come out. And if there's no sort of centralised law, there is no one regulator. Um, it's just a case of enforcing existing rules. Now, we've mentioned this in passing already, the, the, the different approaches to stimulating innovation. The EU is obviously banking on the Brussels effect, the notion that clear regulation, clear and extensive regulation uh, gives companies the certainty they need to then develop and to innovate. The UK prefers a much lighter touch, assuming that uh, companies that are free of all of the bureaucratic red tape can... Uh, just go ahead and do do what they do best, which is to innovate. Is that a fair uh, summary in your view, uh, Nicholas? I think we, we perhaps shouldn't make too many assumptions about what the British regime is eventually going to look like, just because Britain is at a much earlier stage here. But um, I do think this highlights uh, a distinction between British and European approaches to policy making. Uh, that's, that's that's much broader than AI, um, and I think you, know, you you can link this this back to uh, Brexit and and you know, look at Britain as as a country that that has always had a slightly different way of doing things to um, to the EU, and uh, this focus on having more sector specific regulations and and perhaps a lighter touch, um, it definitely stands in contrast to the EU approach. Um, where uh, you've we, we've heard for for years that um, you know when when lobbyists, for example, talk about the need to um, not to overregulate for the sake of innovation, the the response from uh, the Commission has always been, "Well, our tough laws will inspire confidence," um, which is which is not the the approach that is kind of is, is is orthodox in in the UK, nor I would say in, in other English speaking countries. Actually, I, I I think there is a just a different philosophy there. Yeah, this is something that lots of people said to me is that um, this is the UK way. Essentially, wait and see what happens, and uh, yeah, and see how it goes elsewhere. See what works and what doesn't, and and then you end up with the best result. There is maybe a, a slight issue with that, which is that there's kind of a there's a there's an AI arms race going on. Uh, and there's a sort of parallel regulation race, as it were. Uh, and there is a view, um, a senior UK government scientist uh, produced a report recently on pro-innovation regulation, and he put forward this idea that we're in a very short window right now where if uh, the UK doesn't sort of act and get it right, we're going to miss the boat and be left behind. And so this, this kind of wait-and-see approach does come with its own risks. Now, Sam mentioned the fact that uh, companies in the UK are worried about, you know, the, the prospect of having to deal with multiple regulators. What about the enforcement regime in the EU, Nicholas? How are things looking there? 
Well, it, it remains to be seen. I mean, it also depends whether you're talking about the EU as a whole or individual EU countries, because enforcement of the AI Act is, is going to be largely at national level. What the Commission's proposal for the AI Act says is that member states have to create national authorities, uh, one or more national authorities, to enforce the AI Act. It doesn't have to be just one, and they have to have certification bodies uh, to, to assess and certify the high-risk systems. Um, but, but it also says that in each country there has to be one supervisory authority. So even if you do end up with multiple authorities enforcing the AI Act, there has to be one authority above them supervising that. Now, we don't know which authorities are going to do that. Um, Marie-Laure Denis, who's the, the president of the French Data Protection Authority, the CNIL, uh, has argued that it should be data protection authorities that have that supervisory role. So it may be that, that companies in EU countries don't have to deal with multiple regulators at the same time, or maybe they will. But of course, the EU is meant to be a single market. Um, and there are going to be 27 countries with 27 enforcement regimes. This is now being discussed in the European Parliament where some lawmakers want a little bit more centralisation. So there's been talk of creating an, an EU uh, AI office that would handle cross-border issues. So it would perhaps be somewhat analogous to the European Data Protection Board uh, for the General Data Protection Regulation. The GDPR is enforced at national level by national authorities, but... Um, there are EU structures uh, to try and deal with some of the more complicated cross-border problems. We might see something like that with the AI Act. Um, but again, this, this is still being negotiated. Nicholas and Sam, thank you so much. Clearly uh, a lot of moving parts here, but uh, we look forward to your ongoing coverage of this uh, very interesting issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, James. Sam Clark was speaking to us from London. Nicholas Wallace was in Brussels. Both report on data privacy and security for MLEX and will post a link to their recent musings on AI at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. You'll see a tab called News Hub. If you click on that, you'll be able to get the very best of MLEX's analysis and reporting. There's also an archive of this podcast and you'll find a link to our recent chat on AI with Jen Bryce and Amy Miller from our San Francisco team. It's all just a few clicks away. Now, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the MLEX podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you go for your audio downloads. Rate and review us where possible. It helps us spread the word. And for antitrust fans, just a reminder that on Monday we'll have a special edition of the podcast from the American Bar Association's Antitrust Spring Meeting. Kushita Vasant and Lewis Crofts will huddle around a microphone and bring you all of the behind-the-scenes gossip from that meeting, so expect that to land in your feed on Monday. And we'll be back next Friday for your usual fix of regulatory news. The podcast is produced and presented by me, James Paniki. It's brought to you with the assistance of MLEX's marketing team in London, and our executive producer is Richard Thompson. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.